brothers and sisters, family in Christ, I ask you to take your Bibles, and it is my delight to ask you to turn with me to the Gospel of Mark. We'll be looking at Mark chapter 5, verses 21 through 43, and this is a sandwich narrative that is a culmination in part of Mark's argument. His argument is that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. See, Mark has been building a case. He's been supplying us with evidence with the miracles of Christ, showing us that he is truly the second person of the Trinity. This is just the third time I've preached to you, and I must confess that I'm convicted every time of the eternal weight of the Word of God. And if you are blessed by the preaching of this Word tonight, then it is only because of the power of the Holy Spirit, using the foolishness of preaching as He promised. But let us come and pray before we read this and ask that the Holy Spirit would bless the reading and preaching of His Word. Please pray with me. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you that you have promised to bless the reading and preaching of your word, that you said it would go out but not return to you void. And Father, we confess that we are coming to a king. And so we bring with us a large petition that you would be pleased to use the foolishness of preaching to show us Christ, to make us love Christ, to know Christ better, his character, his love for us, and his eternal power and glory. Father, we pray all these things in the name of Christ Jesus, your Son. Amen. I will not ask you to stand because of the length of this text, but I would encourage you in the Lord to appropriately posture your hearts for the hearing of God's Word. Mark chapter 5, beginning in verse 21. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boats to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come, lay your hands on her, so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him, and a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for twelve years and had suffered many had suffered much under many physicians, and had spent all that she had, and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus, and came up behind him in the crowd, and touched his garment. For she said, If I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself, the power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and asked, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing about you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. And they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he entered, he said to them, 
Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they immediately, they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. Since the reading of God's word uh, for our section tonight, and we pray that he would bless it to our hearts. Before we dive into the details of our passage, let me remind us just of the trajectory of Mark's gospel. Mark is writing primarily to Gentiles, to the uh, unchurched people. He's working hard to prove the divinity of Christ, the kingship of Christ, that he is the savior of sinners, the suffering servant, and the Lord of all, the Son of God. And the emphasis of, at the beginning of Mark's gospel is on the ministry of the gospel of Christ Jesus. Mark has told us where he's going. He's going after our hearts. He's going after our convictions that we would believe that Jesus is the Christ. And we're seeing several pillars being built up in his argument. In the first chapter, we saw Scripture fulfilled and John preparing the way for this Messiah. We saw Jesus begin his ministry, calling his disciples together, and then a flurry of miracles come quick and fast. Jesus healed a paralytic. We saw him cast out demons and cleanse lepers, even touching the unclean and making it clean. In chapter 4, after a long day of preaching, Jesus commands his disciples to put him in a boat and take him across the sea. There's a violent storm. And these experienced sailors, these men of the sea, are terrified for their lives. And they wake up the exhausted Jesus who's sleeping, and they demand him for help. They demand help of him. And with a word, the word of God calms the raging storm. This sleeping man rebukes the wind and the waves, and and they obey. This is the terrible power of the divine lordship of creation. To speak, and the strength of creation is stopped, is an act of the creator. This is a strong pillar in Mark's argument that Christ is the Son of God. And so what we understand is Jesus has power over creation. He is the God to whom all creation sings their glory. And then in chapter 5, we actually reach the other side of the sea with Jesus. But they're in dangerous territory. There's a man who has a, a legion of demons. He's possessed and he's outcast living among the tombs. And rather than finding rest, Jesus finds opposition. And he asks, asks for the name. They say, Legion, for we are many. And Jesus shows his divine authority again. And he casts out this demon. And they run and make their destruction in a herd of pigs. Well, this demoniac is then clothed, healed, and sitting in his, in his right mind. And the Gentiles come and there's great terror. You see, the Gentiles even realize, they get it. They understand the message. Jesus has divine authority, spiritual might. He is capable of healing a sin-sick soul, a tortured man. And this is another strong pillar in Mark's argument. Well, that brings us to verse 21 of our chapter. In the start of our passage where we see two more miracles. Two more miracles that should be taken with the preceding two. Both showing that Christ has authority. Authority over the body. Authority to heal 12 years of sickness. And authority over the wages of sin, even death itself. The greatest argument Mark could be making is made right before us, that the Son of Man is the Son of God here. 
and came to seek and save the lost. And he has the authority to do so. He has authority to say to the groaning creation, peace, be still. He has the power to say to a legion of demons, be gone. And it was so. He has the power to reward a a woman's faith and say, be healed. And it was so. He had the power to say to death, no more. And it was so. So let us see in our passage three things as we move forward. And the first we will see in verses 21 through 24, called to compassion, called to compassion. Right away in verse 21, we see Jesus is a compassionate man. He's come back across the sea from the Gentiles who have rejected him. They are afraid of his power and might, and they beg him to leave. So the rest he goes across the sea to get, he does not find. But rather than quit, rather than call time out or or take a break, Jesus comes across the sea and waiting for him is the crowd. And there's no rest for him. And Mark immediately directs our attention to a certain man, a certain man whose name is Jairus that we see there in verse 22. He's introduced as a, a ruler, a ruler of a synagogue. And so we're expecting him to be at odds with Jesus, right? The scribes have already in chapter 3 declared that Jesus has a demon and he is blaspheming against the Holy Spirit. They're very open and public in their opposition to Christ. But this man is different. In chapter, uh, excuse me, in verse 22, we see him fall down at the feet of Jesus and beg him for his help. And we should be surprised at this. What this man is doing, he knows is not good for him. Jesus is persona non grata with every, all of his co-workers. He's the enemy. And Jairus knows this. Well, what makes him different? His situation. His situation is desperate, and we see that in his request in verse 23. He says, my daughter, my little daughter is very sick and at the point of death. Desperation has driven him here. And he's put him on his knees before a Savior whom he has faith is able to heal. Now, the Gospel of Luke tells us that this is his only daughter. She is singularly loved. Perhaps Jesus has heard or maybe even seen some of the miracles of healing the sick, of mending the lame, and making the deaf hear again. But no matter how Jairus knows about Jesus, he still goes to him. The fact that Jairus is a synagogue ruler, that he's official, has not saved his daughter from sickness and death. The fact that he has influence over the people of God is not helping him now. His money, influence, social power are not helping him be a good father. His resources are gone, and he knows it. Do we know our need of a Savior? Do we know our need of Christ? Do we feel our own weakness to provide for ourselves, for our families? Do we know that we need an all-powerful Savior like this, who can calm the wind and the waves? And do we take action? Do we take action to come before the Savior who can help us? Jairus is a, a model to us in this way. This man is one of the highest among the Jews, and yet he still knows his need for Jesus. He's still a man born of woman whose days are full of trouble, and he's weak and powerless in the face of sickness and death, like so many of us. But notice desperation leads him to place a demand on Jesus. Even though he's here on his knees, begging Jesus in a posture of deference and humility, notice the end of verse 23. Notice he does not ask Jesus to come and heal his daughter. He says, come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well. Not only does Jairus command Jesus to come, 
and perform a miracle, but he's also giving Jesus the details of how this healing is supposed to be done. You notice Jairus says Jesus must come and place his hands on her. He's placing limitations on Jesus. He's rationalizing his faith. He's willing to believe Jesus can heal his daughter, but only if he's in the room with her, only if he has his hands on her. Now, we know from Luke 7 that Jesus can heal from a great distance. There was a centurion whose servant was sick to the point of death, and he sends a humble request to Jesus. He asks, if you are willing, you can save him. But then he adds, I'm not willing to have you under my house, under my roof. And so if you would will, just speak the word, and my servant will be made well. Jesus marvels at the faith of this man because he's a Gentile. No, Jairus is a Jew. He knows the scriptures. He knows that God healed hundreds of people by looking at a bronze serpent lifted up. He knows that God healed Naaman through river water. He knows that God is powerful to save. And yet, here he is telling Jesus the when, the where, the how, the what, the why of this miracle. When we are in, in trials, when we are at the feet of Jesus, do we also place expectations on on our Savior? Perhaps we do fly to Jesus. Perhaps we do pray for salvation and deliverance out of our trial from the burdens that we bear. But perhaps do we do that with qualifications? Do we say, you must do this my way, on my timeline? From the example of Jairus here, let us be warned and examine ourselves. Let us be weary of placing upon our creator, sustainer, redeemer limits. When we pray for strength, let us not ask with a double tongue, as James warns us. But let us ask in faith. But notice Jesus' rich compassion here. Notice he goes with this man, this man who is his enemy, this man who has thrown his lot in with those who have rejected him, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the synagogue rulers. Jesus still goes with him. He still, he has just, Jairus has just made demands on Jesus to order him to come and serve his wants and needs. He has no right at all to speak to Christ like this. But Jesus doesn't ruffle up. He does not remind Jairus who he is. He does not give, he does not rebuke Jairus for his lack of faith and give him the tongue lashing he deserves. Jesus meets Jairus where he's at and he goes with him. After an exhausting day of preaching, after a stormy night of interrupted sleep, and dealing with the faithlessness of his own disciples. Jesus is tired. Instead of getting the rest he wants on the other side of the sea, he's met with a demonic power play and a people who reject him for exercising divine authority and compassion. And yet after all that, he still goes with this man. Jesus' Jesus's compassion is what is keeping him moving forward, one foot in front of the other. After a night like that, he is beyond tired. He's beyond fatigue, and yet he is still willing to walk with this man, however far, to heal his daughter. And this is compassion. This is Jesus dealing with him on the basis of faith, even a small faith. Do we know our need for a Savior like this? Our need for a Savior who acts on the faith the size of a mustard seed? Do we know that we need a Savior who is compassionate? slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Do we know that when we come to Jesus, we are coming to a sympathetic Savior, one who's not holding our faults, our shortcomings over us? Do we know that, do we want to know how Jesus is the exact imprint of God the Father? Do we want to know how that is? Well, look no further than these verses here. 
Jesus has divine authority, and as he's using it, he's wielding it for love, for compassion. He's not giving Jairus, Jairus a rebuke. And how often does Christ deal with us the same way? How often does he look with compassion upon we who are needy and broken and in, in desperate circumstances? And how often is he slow to anger with us? And what greater proof do we need of Jesus' daily, uh, daily love for us than his daily patience with us? He's patient with Jairus and abounding with steadfast love for this man who looked to him in faith, did not turn him away for his faulty beliefs. He did not crush this smoldering flax or bruised reed. And however imperfect this man's faith was, Jesus did meet Jairus where he was at and walk with him. This is true compassion. This is truly Emmanuel, God with us. And let me put this question to us tonight. Has Jesus gone with us? Have we come to Jesus and implored him to exercise his divine authority that all that we have seen and heard might, become, might come true, that all of the promises of God would be yes and amen for us? Have we prayed in the name of this mighty ruler that he would come and save us? Do you trust in Christ Jesus that he is enough, even though our faith might be lacking, even though we might not understand why? Well, I ask you to secondly see with me a prelude to power. We have an interruption in our story. Jairus must wait. For in verses 25 through 34, we have the meat of the sandwich. And in this section, we see Mark showing us one who did look to Jesus in faith in her hour of need. So look again with me at verse 25. The context is the end of verse 24. The tired Jesus is being swarmed. He's being swarmed by not only his disciples, but a very large crowd. And they're thronging about Jesus on his way to Jairus' house. And in verse 25, we see this woman. And there are two things Mark wants us to know about her right away. We see that there is her disease, and we notice that she is unclean. She is ceremonially unclean. And verse 25 records that she's suffering from a flow of blood. Now, any person, any Jew who has a flow of blood is ceremonially unclean in the law. Leviticus 15, 25-30 is very detailed in the laws regarding this malady. For this woman, the law said she was unclean, therefore she must be separate from the people of God. She must be cast out. She could not go in and out as a normal person would. Her bed was considered unclean. Anyone who touched her was unclean. Anyone who touched the things she touched was unclean. And anyone who touched these things would be unclean and have to wash his clothes and be unclean until the evening. You see, unclean is all over, all over this woman. And this unclean person is in a swarming crowd of people. She's making everyone else unclean as well. But the second thing we want, uh, Mark wants us to notice is that she has been afflicted like this for 12 years. 12 years she's been cut off from the people of God. 12 years she has not been able to go to the temple and worship God. And Mark wants us to pity her. We should sympathize with her. Do you all remember COVID? The lockdown that prevented us from coming to church, that cut us off from each other, the communion of the saints, and even the sacraments. We could barely handle three months. This woman had to endure 12 years of loneliness. And Mark adds these details, more, even more details in verse 26. Notice that she has suffered many things under many physicians. 
she suffered a whole host of treatments, and we're not told exactly what these treatments are. We can surmise from contemporary medical practices she probably had leeches put on her or hot irons applied to the places of bleeding and various superstitious rituals performed over her. And each of these phony saviors failed, and she paid dearly because we see that she spent everything that she had. Now she has become destitute, both physically and fiscally. Her money has dried up, and her illness flows on. Mark is wanting us to pity this woman. She is truly at the end of her rope, and we are about to see her sweaty, bloody, tired hand lose its grip. But then in verse 27, we hear that she has heard, she too has heard about Jesus, and she too has faith that he can heal her. She, like Jairus, she also takes action and puts her faith into practice to endanger her faith and to risk it all in public embarrassment. In verse 27, she comes up behind him. She touches his garments, and we're told her reasoning in verse 28. If I just touch his garment, then I will be made well. Mark's, uh, excuse me, Matthew's gospel adds another detail that she just touched the fringe of his garment. Why just the fringe? Why his garment? Let me paint for you a mental picture of a Jew. The garments of a Jew were quite elaborate. They were very structured and regimented. It was a uniform. And when a man walked, his outer garment had tassels on it. When he would walk, it would look like wings. Perhaps this woman is hoping, trusting, in Malachi 4, verse 2, which says, But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in his wings. Perhaps she's looking to this promise. Perhaps she's hoping that this will be yes and amen in Christ. Perhaps she's just wanting to touch his wings where there is healing. Look at verse 30, uh, 29. Look at the results of her faith. Immediately, immediately her flow of blood was dried up. And this is no temporary recession of disease. No, she was immediately healed and she knew it. She knew her body was forever changed. This is not like other physicians who have promised that the treatment will kick in in a couple of days after you, after you are stopped being sore. There's no monitoring in a hospital for several hours. There is immediate and complete healing. This is divine power. How could it be? How else could it be? How could she, with one touch, undo 12 years of hurt, of brokenness, of disease? This divine power. And we see that in verse 30. Jesus knew, knew, he knew power had gone out from him. What we are seeing here is a picture of a compassionate and powerful Savior. You see, this woman did not pull a fast one on Jesus. She did not rob him of any divine power or authority. She did not sneak a cookie from the cookie jar when the master wasn't looking. No, Mark is showing us that Jesus is in a constant state of preparedness, ready to receive all those who come to him who are weary and heavy laden. His mission, Christ's mission, is to seek and save the lost, to bind up the wounded and brokenhearted. And he is so ready, so obedient to that mission, that he responds instantaneously to the woman who comes to him and just touches him in faith. Mark is showing us that he, Christ, is always ready and and ready to welcome those who come to him in humility. He's always ready to welcome the broken, the broken sinner who knows their need of him. So we see Jesus cleanse the unclean. And we've seen this before in the Gospel of Mark. This woman 
has come to Jesus to be made clean. And he should have been unclean himself. Jesus should have had to wash his clothes and been unclean until the evening. But not so with Christ, not so with the powerful one, the God of all creation. No, he comes to make the sick well again. And we've seen this before in Mark's gospel. Jesus has been approached by a leper, one who is also outcast, outside of the people of God. And this leper says to him, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus reaches out and touches him, touches the one who would make him unclean, and he's not violated. Jesus is the Savior who touches us, the unclean, to make us whole. Because he comes and takes our uncleanness upon himself. And we see this exchange no more clearly than the cross. Jesus is the clean one, the pure and spotless one. But he is the one who comes near to us and touches us and takes upon himself our uncleanness and wipes the slate clean. Death does not hold him, and he sees no corruption in the grave. Because of his power, he is raised to newness of life, even after having become our uncleanness. But there is one more incredible thing we must note in this section. We see that Jesus, after having performed this miracle, turns around and he says in verse 30, Who touched my garments? And his disciples are incredulous. They ask sarcastically, You see the crowd around you? And you ask, Who touched me? But Jesus is not deterred in his search. In Luke's gospel, he is searching so intently that people are denying, I didn't touch you. People who have been thronging around him are denying their closeness with Jesus. And so in verse 30, Jesus, verse 32, excuse me, Jesus is actively looking for this person even still. And are we not reminded of the parable of the lost shepherd, I mean, of the lost sheep? Here Jesus is surrounded by the 99, his disciples in the crowd, and he leaves them all, as it were, to actively pursue this one, this woman, for her faith. You see, if Jesus had let her go, she was in danger of not returning to the people of God. Or she was in worse danger of thinking she had superstitiously been uh, healed through some magic. And in the midst of all these people who are denying their closest to Jesus, verse 33, this woman comes and testifies of all that Christ has done for her. And she is called out in front of everyone to confess Christ. And in verse 34, Jesus addresses her as daughter. For her confession, for her faith, he says, your faith has made you well. Jesus wants this woman to know that she is healed and restored through faith, not through, through magic, not through ritual. She is restored in her faith through him. And the original language has something interesting here for us. Jesus says, go into peace. Go into peace. He's telling her to go into the peace of being a Christian, into the peace of being one who is justified right with God, one who is cleansed being one who has forgiveness of sins and has fellowship with her fellow Christians with her shared interest in the portion in her portion of in Christ if you are a Christian here tonight if you have also made a public profession of faith then this miracle should make us consider our vows our vows that we have been called out by the irresistible grace of God to confess before Christ we too have stood before a crowd we too have been afraid and trembled and perhaps even embarrassed. But we too have still come. And you have declared that you are a sinner, 
sick and needy and in the sight of God justly deserving all his wrath, and that you have no hope apart from the blood of Jesus, and you have declared that you are resting in, in Christ alone, the Son of God, the Savior of sinners, and that he is your help and salvation. And you have resolved and promised in humble reliance on the Holy Spirit to live as become a Christian. And you have been sprinkled clean of all your uncleanness through the waters of baptism and the death of Christ. So to you it is said, be at peace. To you it is said, be at peace with God, for you are a son, a daughter of the Creator. And your salvation is sure, for your inheritance has taken away your uncleanness. That is, Christ has brought you near. He has borne your sins and died in your place. He has risen from the dead and now sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty in resurrection and glory so that we, we who are like this woman, like the leper, outcast, unclean, far off, we would be brought near to God. So I ask you to see with me thirdly, the doom of death, the doom of death in verses 35 and 43. And we come now to the other half of the sandwich, as it were. And poor Jairus, poor Jairus standing there in the throes of urgency and despair. What must he have been feeling as Jesus stopped? Yes, we might be happy. This woman is healed. Great. But he stops. Even after he's healed, he stops to coax a profession of faith out of this sick woman who's no longer sick. And Jairus is dying inside every moment. And then perhaps maybe he saw the people coming from his house, and his heart sank to his toes. Verse 35, while Jesus is still speaking with this woman, they come up and they rip his heart out of his chest. They say, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? What a crushing news. And how little respect or gentleness they deliver it in. And notice they refer to Jesus as teacher or rabbi. Now, this is the title that people give to Jesus when they do not believe that he is the Christ. They say, like many today, Jesus is not the Son of God. He's just some teacher. They say he's some good moral teacher. And Mark's gospel, the whole gospel, is showing us that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, not just some teacher. That he has authority to teach, not as the scribes teach. So these fellows are clearly lacking faith. They do not appreciate Jairus going to Jesus for help. And they're using this turn of providence to try and tear down Jairus' faith. They're effectively saying, Jairus, come away from this speaker because your trouble is too big for him. Jesus cannot help you now because no one can overcome death. Your daughter is gone. Get over it. But verse 36, Jesus overhears these servants tempting Jairus. And so he says to him, do not fear, only believe. You see, Jesus, the good shepherd, will not allow Jairus, one of his sheep, to flounder in his unbelief. He's using the delay of this woman's confession to test Jairus' faith so that it would become strong. Jesus is calling upon Jairus to believe in him. And he calls on Jairus to lean not on his own understanding, but to trust. And then we see that Jesus makes people stay behind. Everyone's to stay behind and allows none but Peter, James, John, and the father and mother of this child to come and see what he's about to do. In verse 38, they come upon quite the spectacle. At the house, there are these professional ambulance-chasing mourners who have been called to this house to publicly mourn the loss of this man's daughter. You see, it was 
public sign of prominence in antiquity to have a, a great lament and to be very loud and showy in your mourning. The idea was you wanted to advertise how great your family was because so many people were lamenting a death in your family. But Jesus cuts right through the social red tape. And he goes right into the chaos and says, verse 39, Why are you making such a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. Well, the hyenas and jackals surrounding the deathbed of this man's daughter burst out in laughter, and they mock Jesus. You see, they know she's dead. Luke's gospel tells us they know. And like the woman, all human efforts to save her life have failed. They do not have faith. And Jesus knows she dead. She is dead also. And when Jesus offers them faith with his words, they take the first opportunity to laugh in the face of his power. But we have to ask, why did Jesus say that she was sleeping if she was truly dead? Well, I remind you of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, where Paul is teaching the Thessalonians of the hope that they have for the dead, for the resurrection of the dead. Paul refers to those who have died in Christ as those who have fallen asleep in Christ. Paul, Jesus is not saying that this girl is not dead. This is, this is not like the princess bride where people can be mostly dead. Rather, Jesus is speaking about her as if she's going to be raised. He's speaking about her in faith and in hope. When she is resurrected, it will be like she was never dead at all, only sleeping. Mark is showing us that Jesus is comforting her grieving parents with his power. He's essentially saying, my power is greater than death. For when I restore her to you, my power is so great that it will be like waking her up. I can raise her from the dead as easy as you can wake her from a nap. And it's in the face of this testimony of the Son about himself that the people mock. and They reject Jesus' power. And notice verse 40. The ESV is a bit tame here. When Jesus put them out, when it says Jesus put them outside, all except the girl's parents, Peter, James, and John. The Greek literally reads, Jesus threw them out. They were gone. This is a violent throwing out. This is a purging, a cleansing. This is the same word that Jesus will use to purge the temple. Zeal for his father's house will consume him, and he will drive out the people who are abusing the worship of God. He ekbalos them. And here, G Jesus drives away the people who are abusing this man's mourning, his grief. He's cleansing the house of their faithlessness, their filth. And this is not the anger of man. But this is the zeal of God born out of compassion. For notice verse 41. He goes into the little girl. And this is the peak of the mountain. Mark has been building up to this verse for 20 verses. This is a hold your breath moment. Will she rise? Won't she rise? And notice Jesus, again, reaches out and touches her. No Jew was to touch a dead body. For in touching a dead body, he would himself become unclean and remain unclean until the evening. But Jesus does not become unclean here when he touches this little girl. Rather, the unclean becomes clean. The dead is no longer unclean, but is made alive, and she is raised to newness of life. Verse 42, immediately she obeys the Creator's voice, and the life of 12 years that has ended is restored. She's reunited with her family. In verse 43, Mark shows us the power and the compassion of this God. All these things are clearly seen in Jesus. This miracle of miracles is performed, and everyone is amazed and stunned. But Jesus shows concern 
for this little lamb, and he tells them to give her something to eat. You see, the dead cannot eat with Jesus, but Jesus' power is fully confirmed, for this girl is alive, and she needs something to eat. But we see also in verse 43, we see Jesus, right after he performs a miracle, charge the persons whom he has just restored to keep silent and not tell anyone. This is the messianic secret. And Jesus does this for two main reasons. First, it is a judgment on those who mocked. Those who mocked, the servants, those who laughed in the face of Jesus' power, they do not get to rejoice in this miracle. Their unbelief is judged. But second, it's also a mercy. The, The Jews would have abused this wonderful miracle. They would have tried to make Jesus, as they do, will have done, uh, and will will try to do. They will try to make Jesus a political figure for their own ends. They will see what they want to see. They do not understand Jesus came to cleanse them of their uncleanness because they do not understand they need cleansing. Do we see that we need to be cleansed? The question for us tonight is, do we see that we need a Savior to cleanse us? And if we do see this, If we are Christians, then do we want to know this Christ better? Do we want to commune with one who comes near to us and touches our uncleanness? Do we want to do we want the one who is all powerful to come near to us when all other human helps fail? Mark is giving us that Savior. Right here. He's giving us a narrative. Jesus has just come from enacting powerful miracles over creation and over a demon. He's, perform, he's, he's promised to perform a miracle. He's on the way. He performs a miracle by healing the woman of a flow of blood. And he performs a miracle of raising the dead to newness of life. A divine power sandwich. Do you need, do you need a Christ like this? Well, let us grasp hold of him, this very Jesus, this very eternal word in faith, and never let go, for he will not let you go. Do you need a reminder that Christ is Lord, that he is the Son of God? Do you need a reminder that Jesus is not only powerful, but has the character of compassion, the character of love, to come and drive away the oppressors of your life, of sin, the world, the flesh, and the devil? Are you doubting, lonely? You try, have been tried and tested by trials like this, sickness, death, scorn from others, helplessness, despair? Have you experienced lost and emptiness, the loneliness of life? Are you suffering even now? If you've experienced loss and those who should be your friends have failed you, here is a Jesus who is the friend of sinners. Here is one to come near to you. Here is one who promises all authority on heaven and on earth is given to me, and I will be with you to the ends of the age. Let us be found being those who cling to him. I'm going to ask you to come now with me in prayer. Let's pray. Holy Triune God, we bless you, the Holy Father of the Son and Sender of the Holy Spirit. For you, in Christ, have given us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. For you have sent your Son, very God of very God, eternally begotten, not made, coexisting forever to take on flesh like us flesh that is weak and needs sleep and becomes tired, and yet flesh that never failed to obey you fully. 
for we see even here in Mark that Christ is always willing and able to accept those who look to him in faith. Holy Father, we pray that if there are any here tonight who do not know you, we ask that Christ would be beautiful in their eyes, that the irresistible grace of God would sweetly draw them to you. And for we who do know Christ, we ask that we would know him better. May we be desperate to know the length, the depth, and the breadth, and the height of the love of God for us who are in Christ Jesus our Lord. And we pray this in the mighty name of this ruler of the wind and waves, Christ Jesus. Amen.